Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 45. My name's Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be recounting one of the most advanced and devastating cyber attacks in history, solar winds. Today's episode is brought to you by Lima Charlie. Lima Charlie is a SecOps cloud platform that provides you with comprehensive protection that brings together critical cybersecurity capabilities and eliminates integration challenges and security gaps for more effective protection against today's threats. To learn more and get started with our full featured free tier, visit limacharlie.io. Season 7, Episode 15 of Shark Tank aired on January 29, 2016. Among the products being pitched to the Sharks, SAT prep courses, sports bras, and backpacks with built-in battery chargers. In case you need to, you know, charge your iPhone on a hike or something. You wonder whether the producers were reaching at this point. That, after 7 seasons, there just aren't that many new products under the sun like the fourth product pitched on that Season 7, Episode 15 show, a battery-powered air conditioner slash cooler. It's an idea that thousands of people around the world have probably already thought of before. On hot summer days, even its name, Icy Breeze, gives the impression that the contestants came up with the idea only a few minutes before they had to get on camera. One of the judges, Kevin O'Leary, was straightforward when he told the contestants. Quote, I don't think people in America are going to embrace a $400 cooler with ice in it as an air conditioner. End quote. Oh, right. They were charging almost half a grand for this thing. Not one of the judges wanted in. If it feels like we're picking on Icy Breeze, though, it's only to point out a giant and weird disparity. Earlier in the pitch, the lead representative for Icy Breeze, a man with neat hair, white teeth, and a chiseled jawline named Dave Yance mentioned that, earlier in his career, he started a software company with his brother. Which one? asked one of the sharks. Yance replied, uh, SolarWinds? If Icy Breeze was a high-profile company that never really made it off the ground, SolarWinds is a complete opposite. A company that was simply everywhere though very few people would have recognized the name. John Bambanik, Principal Threat Hunter at Net & Rich. I mean, SolarWinds is, is a smaller company in the sense of they do specific, very specific solutions well. SolarWinds does network and IT management, performance monitoring, device management, that sort of thing. It's not the kind of business that jumps off the page, but it was run well. Case in point. In a rarity for any business, SolarWinds was profitable from its founding in 1999 through its IPO in 2009. Most of all, it was in the right place when, quietly, organizations nationwide needed exactly what they were offering. As a result of kind of the growing complexity of our infrastructure environments uh, for enterprises and even medium-sized business, you need tools to automate and manage it, right? To say that SolarWinds became a billion-dollar business with hundreds of millions in revenue every year doesn't even capture just how big it had gotten. 
By 2020, the company counted over 300,000 organizations as its customers. Not 300,000 people, 300,000 government agencies, institutions, NGOs, and businesses, including nearly every Fortune 500 company, according to the New York Times. Point at a random ticker symbol on the stock exchange, and odds are that company had SolarWinds software installed in its IT networks. Few people could have even imagined the consequences if a company so widespread and so integral to the U.S. economy were to be breached by hackers of an enemy state. Or that such an attack could have already begun. On December 8, 2020, Kevin Mandia, CEO of the cybersecurity company FireEye, published an ominous note about a cyber attack against FireEye itself. Based on my 25 years in cybersecurity responding to incidents, he wrote, I've concluded we are witnessing an attack by a nation with top-tier offensive capabilities. This attack is different from the tens of thousands of incidents we have responded to throughout the years. He wasn't exaggerating. Hackers working on behalf of Russia's foreign intelligence service had broken into FireEye, one of the very few most well-guarded cyber environments on the planet, and stolen the company's own security software. Additionally, they scanned FireEye's internal records for information on their U.S. government clients. This, remarkably, was only one small corner of a much broader picture. Over a year prior, on September 4, 2019, the Russians had broken into SolarWinds, likely through the company's Microsoft Office 365 account. At this point, they could have done just about anything. Hackers with this kind of access usually steal sensitive data or sometimes source code, or deploy ransomware, whatever. Instead of any of that, though, the SolarWinds attackers tried something entirely different. They began by installing a dropper malware, now commonly referred to as Sunspot, on the company's build server. Build servers are what modern software companies use to combine smaller components of an application into their large whole product. Sunspot's job was to monitor the build server for commands that indicated the assembling of Orion, SolarWinds flagship IT monitoring and management software. If Sunspot detected Orion's build, it covertly swapped out certain files in the Orion app with a second info-stealing malware we call Sunburst. Now, software companies weren't born yesterday. During the build process, there is a check before the human-readable code is compiled into base machine code. When the software is checked for any tampering, Sunspot was specifically designed to implant Sunburst only after this check, just before the Orion files were compiled. At this point, Orion is carrying Russian malware, but with no outward indication to that effect and so the new, updated version of the software is pushed to all of SolarWinds' tens of thousands of clients, just like any other software update would be. Typically, updating as quickly as possible is a best practice companies use to stay ahead of vulnerabilities, so, in an ironic twist, it is the most vigilant SolarWinds clients that are the first to be infected. Unlike most malware, Sunburst doesn't do anything. Yet. Updates are often vetted for any potential issues. It is, after all, brand new code. So Sunburst, knowing this, waits two weeks before doing anything at all. Finally, 
After that period is passed, it does two things. Disabling one of the host's antivirus software that could potentially detect it, and then sending information about the host back to the attacker via DNS requests. More on that in a bit. If the hackers weren't interested enough in any particular catch, or on the other hand, if it was too high risk, they could simply instruct Sunburst to self-destruct. But if the targeted host was interesting and worth pursuing further, they assigned it a unique command and control server, a home base for stealing any and all sensitive data they could find. And then they deployed a new bit of maliciousness, a backdoor for establishing persistent access. This is the skeleton, minus a lot of detail, that enabled Russian intelligence to penetrate thousands upon thousands of organizations. Not just FireEye, but Cisco, NVIDIA, Equifax, Fidelis, and so many other Fortune 500 companies. Beyond that, at least a dozen U.S. government agencies, the Department of Defense, Energy, Homeland Security, you name it. News of the SolarWinds breach touched millions. Different people reacted differently. Some with calm, some with alarm. Some took action and others waited for more information to come in. Like everyone else in the security community, John Bambanek couldn't get it out of his mind. Even when he wasn't working, he found himself mulling it over, like one morning. And I'm in the shower just thinking through of their algorithm. By now it was clear that tens of thousands of victims had downloaded a compromised version of the Orion software. But few knew what to do about it because the hackers had masked their activity so thoroughly. They were kind of stuck in a rut. Okay, the first step of incident response is, I have a vulnerable version of this. I need to patch it. Okay, you patch it, right? The back door is closed. That doesn't solve that somebody may have been in your environment. The first question you need to ask is, were they? It's one thing to backdoor tens of thousands of organizations, but no APT on Earth has the resources, let alone the interest to actively exploit that many targets. Just because there is a backdoor doesn't mean that the company itself was victimized. How then, in that giant pool, could anybody determine which organizations were actually meaningfully targeted by foreign threat actors? Certain clues laid in the malware. In its initial phase of infection, Sunburst sent information about the computer it was infecting to C2 servers controlled by the attackers. These messages were transmitted via encoded DNS requests. This is the algorithm John was just referring to. I don't know that anybody specifically tasked me, but it was just a, a shower response of, all right, well, here's the data I've got access to. Here's what I know about the threat actor and how they're communicating. Can I find a pattern that I'm able to pull back through historical data to map all of their activity, or as much of it as possible. The thoughts kept running through his head. I was able to mash those data points together, got out of the shower, dried off, you know, probably didn't get all the way dressed because I didn't want to lose my train of thought and, you know, mm -hmm. sat down in front of my computers and said, yeah, I can do this. This mm -hmm. works. He went online and published a GitHub repository with all of the DNS queries related to SolarWinds. Then the community got to work decoding and unpacking it. You know, so here's the corpus of data, worked with a couple of other security companies to add in more of their, their data, 
you know, which enabled the final mile of research to say, okay, here's the encryption algorithm. Here's how you go from the queries to turn into what the victims are. Uh, and it, uh, it was essentially host names of domain controllers. Sometimes the domain name was obvious. Sometimes you had to make an inference based on internal naming conventions. So most were able to neatly tie off their incident response saying, hey, we're okay, respond to their executive leadership, get the hand off the panic button. For a select few, however, the story would not end well. The others, it was, okay, here's some guidance, here's some, some things to look for so they can hone in on what the adversary did. Large enterprises, research firms, government agencies, and more would spend many months to come looking for clues and picking up the pieces, trying to figure out what the attackers had achieved and what the consequences would be. Perhaps nobody explained the sophistication, the difficulty, of the Solar Winds campaign and the sheer time and effort it took to unpack it better than Kevin Mandia of FireEye. FireEye is one of the few most prestigious cybersecurity companies in the world, yet even they were almost completely stumped by their breach. In a testimony before the Senate Committee on Intelligence, he said, quote, We put almost 100 people on this investigation. Almost all of them had 10,000 hours there, so to speak. 10,000 hours of doing investigations, and we unearthed every clue we could possibly find, and we still didn't know. So how did the attacker break in? We had to do extra work. And at some point in time, after exhausting every investigative lead, the only thing left was, the earliest evidence of compromise was a solar wind server, and we had to tear it apart. And what I mean by that is we had to decompile it. Specifically, there were 18,000 files in the update, and 3,500 executable files. We had over a million lines of assembly code. For those of you that haven't looked at assembly, you don't want to. It's something that you have to have specialized expertise to review, understand, piece apart, and we found the proverbial needle in the haystack, an implant. But how did we get there? Thousands of hours of humans investigating everything else. And that's one of the reasons I share that as you wonder why people missed it, this was not the first place you'd look. This was the last place you'd look for an intrusion. End quote. This is why you hear so many strong adjectives used in conjunctions with the solar winds breach. The biggest supply chain hack ever. An act of cyber terrorism, many government official and CEO have claimed. Microsoft President Brad Smith summed it up in an interview with 60 Minutes. He guessed that, to have pulled off such a devilish scheme, certainly more than a thousand hackers must have been involved. He added that from a software engineering perspective, it's probably fair to say that this is the largest and most sophisticated attack the world has ever seen. Kaseya Limited is a Miami-based company that develops software for managing business networks and devices. Their customers are MSPs, managed service providers, which do the work of handling organizations' IT infrastructure. Mere months into 2021, a cybercrime group called Revel, or Evil, breached one of the products Kaseya sells to MSPs called Virtual System Administrator, or VSA. Kaseya's VSA is remote monitoring and management software. Through an authentication bypass vulnerability, Revel managed to inject a malicious payload into a VSA software update, thereby infecting many of its MSP clients, and by extension, those MSP's clients. 
Sound familiar? The legacy of SolarWinds wasn't about the consequences to its victims, the sophistication of the operation, or its impact on geopolitics. No, its legacy was much more significant than any of that, and it was felt by all of us. It raised the awareness at the board and executive level. It really brought into focus supply chain issues for them, that there's a lot of vendors that you just trust that you really can't evaluate effectively, or in risk management terms, we call it third-party risk. What's the risk that my software vendor or cloud provider gets compromised, and how can I know about it? And the answer is you can't know about it. According to the Identity Theft Resource Center, in only the first quarter of 2021, the months directly following FireEye's disclosure, supply chain cyber attacks had already risen by 42%. Later, the European Union Cybersecurity Agency reported that supply chain attacks would be four times more prevalent in 2021 than 2020. Then, in 2022, supply chain attacks rose again, this time by 633%, according to supply chain company Sonatype. On the attacker side, they get it. You know, I've got to grind to get one victim. What if I can get thousands in one shot? On January 21st last year, the hacker group Lapsus used a third-party contractor to weasel into servers belonging to authentication provider Okta, itself a third-party authentication provider for tens of thousands of companies worldwide. Through the contractor's contractor, the hackers not only locked up Okta's systems, but also spread to possibly hundreds of their customers' networks and data. There was an explosion of people trying to do malicious code updates in GitHub and NPM and the various code libraries repositories that people use. In other words, hacking not the suppliers themselves or the supplier's suppliers, but the code that companies end up adopting into their own products and services. Thousands upon thousands of little traps placed innocuously right out in the open, just waiting to spread around the world. It may be no stretch to suggest that these trends, and many of the world's most significant attacks since 2021, so many we couldn't even begin to cover them all in the time we have, all derive inspiration from one source. SolarWinds wasn't the first supply chain breach, but it was the supply chain breach. Without that world-altering event, we would be living in quite a different cyberspace today. This happens every couple of years. We're actually due for another one, where there's a major incident, a major vulnerability, a major supply chain, something, where it's just pants on fire for everybody in the industry. SolarWinds was one of them. WannaCry a few years prior was one of them. Log4j more recently was another. We can kind of go through these, these incidents where it's just basically the world is on fire. We are today living in the post-SolarWinds era. At least, that is, until the next paradigm-shifting cyber attack upends everything we knew all over again. And that concludes episode number 45 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. This episode was written by the talented Nathaniel Nelson, narrated by me, Christopher Luft, and produced by the team at Lima Charlie. A special thank you to John Bambanek for sharing his first-hand knowledge of the SolarWinds attack. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. 
You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.